you are the light of the world. And yes, all these things are true that you promise. And so I just wanted to remind us, <clears throat> Jesus is the light of the world. I um, have always a candle on our table every meal that we eat to remind us he's the light of the world. All you have to do is go to some places in the world that weren't founded on the truth of God's word like ours was. And you see darkness is really dark. And we're so privileged to have him show us the way to live in a family, the smallest nutshell of the unit of society. Love one another. Don't return evil for evil. <laughs> Take it to all the nations, this good news, that I came to give my life so that you guys could live and have me inside of you all of the days of your life. It's really good news. And it's really worth it. Everything, every small little thing that we would give to see that news taken to the next one and the next neighbor down the street and the next person that doesn't know it yet. So I'm in. For the rest of my life, I'm a grandma now. We have four grandkids. And we're showing them, or demonstrating to them, calling them into this life, seeing them come to Jesus. There's no better news. So sometimes people give up before the end of their lives. And it's just a really bad idea because I want to be found faithful when I see him face to face, the Lord of heaven and earth, the high king of heaven, <laughs> when I need to give account for my life, because we all will. Did you stay faithful? It's not about numbers. It's not about all the ways of... Um, understanding of uh, success that man has. It's about how we keep our hearts. Is he still the best thing, the best story that we've ever heard? So thank you to all of you who plan to stay faithful for a lifetime. Bless you. Just thinking about this last week, uh, what Gordy was just talking about, uh, what happened 26 years ago when we, 1989, we sent you out. Well, when I say you, uh, was how many were around? Gordy wasn't around. It was just you, the only ones. How many were around uh, at the beginning of the Vancouver East Vineyard? Uh, 
One. I see that hand. Uh, a couple of people. And how many of you, 26 years ago, were followers of Jesus? Okay, more of you. So um, That's actually one I want to reflect on a little bit this morning, is just the journey. Uh, the journey at the beginning, what we knew and understood then, and but also the both the challenge and the opportunity of the journey some years on. Thankfully, we're not the first ones who've ever experienced that reality, that Jesus has had followers for some years now. And, and there's some things we can learn from the scripture that I think can helpfully relate to us. At this point of time, right here in your journey, where there's been some change, there's challenge, there's new opportunities, as there always is for uh, an urban church and the reality of trying to survive in a, in a city like Vancouver. So what I hope to do is, is draw on our experience and relate that to, um, well, the first ones, the first followers of Jesus and what it was like for them 25 to 30 years in. See if there's something that relates to us. You know, back in 1989, I, probably the majority of us weren't new to Jesus, but we were new to the gospel, the story of Jesus being significantly good news. Uh, you know, for some of us, about as good as it got was suck it up, attend a lot of meetings, kick a few bad habits, and you might go to heaven when you die. <laughs> and I was sort of hoping for something a little bit better than that, you know, hoping that heaven wouldn't be one long church meeting with communion at the end. And as a little kid, you know, you, you sit through those things, it's, it's a little bit of a challenging reality. But then we, in the late 80s, we, we realized that just maybe Jesus came for more than that. And that saying yes to him was saying more than yes to an eternal life that started after this life was over. But it related to a kind of life, a dimension of life that could begin now and radically change everything. We begin to realize that God as revealed in Jesus was closer than we thought. That actually the kingdom of God, the way that the, our hearts longed for and the way that God promised could be within our reach. And so there was a tremendous excitement in those days. We were some like a, you know, a Christian SWAT team rolling into a room, jumping up, saying, anyone want prayer? You know, we, we sort of thought that God could do anything. And in some ways, we were right. And that was sort of the euphoria when we sent this first team down to Vancouver saying, Let's do this again. Let's do this again. And then again and again. I mean, everyone needs to hear this good news. Everyone needs to experience it. In the words of Isaiah, you know, everyone needs to taste it. Get a taste of what heaven can be when, when it, it touches earth. Well, 26 years in, at least for you guys, uh, I think that question still remains. I think there still is the hunger and longing to know 
How can we do this? What can this mean? How good can the good news be? But probably you, like I, recognize that there's sort of a second question that is more relevant 26 years later than it was at the beginning, and that is, how, how do you sustain this journey of faith? How do you stay, well, and that's the title of the message, not just faithful, there's some pretty angry, dour people that are, quote, faithful, <laughs> but to also be faith-filled. It's one thing to be faith-filled in year one, it's another to be faithful and faith-filled in year 26 after we've seen both the kingdom breaking in and the kingdom's absence and the absolute frustration of realizing that we can't learn the secret handshake to control it all and make God do what he wants to do and, and, or what we want him to do. I mean, he'll always do what he wants to do. Um, Let's reflect on that a bit this morning. And again, as I said to begin with, it's comforting to know that we're not the first people that have faced that reality. We can see that in the New Testament and the first followers of Jesus. But let's look at them to begin with uh, as the church is just being released and launched in a time of what is, well, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster ride for the disciples as we pick them up in Acts chapter 1. Uh, uh, they've gone through uh, their, you know, considerable stock of antidepressants over a few days. Uh, as they come to the discovery or the realization, at least to them, in the first day or two after Jesus died, that they pretty much bet on the wrong horse. And they're ready to go back into fishing or whatever and stay undercover and trying to rationalize in their minds. It just seemed like he was the guy. And, and you know, then they start getting these uh, different reports. Next thing you know, Jesus walks through the locked door and says, what's for dinner? And it's a little bit of a game changer. Uh, so at that point, we pick up their story and we realize... Uh, what then launched them into the world? Well, let's reflect on that. Let's, in fact, look at Acts chapter 1. We'll pick up the story in verse 6. Uh, Jesus has been meeting with them for about 40 days now and filling in the blanks, connecting all the stuff he said to them previously. They just couldn't, given their whole nationalistic perspective, they just didn't have a grid for it. They couldn't understand. They, they couldn't understand the weakness passages in Isaiah. They, they, only, they only had room for a triumphant messianic king that would kick the butt of the Romans. That's the theological term. And, oh, look at this. You've got a monitor right here. Uh, I'll just turn that towards me. Given my age, I forgot my iPad, so everything's on my phone, which I can't read. So... <clears throat> this will be great. So let, let's, I, I won't exactly read every, but you can follow along with me as I'm looking at it. Verse 6, they gather around him uh, and they ask a, a, a totally logical question because the contemporary understanding for many at that time would have been that the turning of the age would be marked by two significant things. One was the resurrection from the dead. I mean, here's Jesus eating fish 
and standing in the room and they're poking him every once in a while, texting their friends going, I think this Messiah thing is back on big time, right? Uh, like, and, uh, and then he's talking about the outpouring of the Spirit. And they felt when those two things came together that this would be the return, the, the restoration of the fortunes of Israel. This would be the turning of the age, the breaking into the kingdom. So they're saying, well, like, is this it? We're in, like, who else would you want? <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, let's end this thing now and stomp everybody, you know. It's kind of like the last people who moved to Florida. Right away, join the group, you know, stopping all further. Uh, not that, it, I don't know if anybody would want to go to Florida. It doesn't make sense to me, but <clears throat> we visited there, and there's, they're all old people our age. <laughs> like, <laughs> who wants to hang around with your age? You know? So he says, well, look, it's, it's not for you to know how all this is going to work out. But you can know this. In in just a few days, you're going to have this profound experience. You're going to understand. Remember when I breathed on you, John 20, and and said, receive the Holy Spirit? Penny may not have dropped as to actually what was going on, the significance of this, that you are actually going to be the temple of God filled with, the, with not just some, not just the comforter that John was talking about. Don't be fooled by this. Yes, it, it, it is the spirit of Jesus. I'm going to be with you in a much more real way than I can be with you physically walking around with you. But, but it, this is the same oracle of prophecy. This is the, the same spirit that energized the prophets, that has... Uh, that has, uh, you know, uh, energized the, the entire history, kept the light uh, of God alive in the midst of opposition. This is, this is the powerful spirit of God, and he's going to be in you. That's going to make a lot of sense in just a few days. And that is going to propel you into the, I mean, all across the social and cultural barriers and send you to the ends of the earth with this incredible message that the marriage of heaven and earth has begun. Now, you want to have a taste? And so he says, this is what's going to happen. And then, uh, now, it, it, this is far more believable now. I mean, I mean, we'd see it a little bit different now with the special effects in movies. But back when I was growing up, if they made a Bible movie, you know this was about to get very cheesy. You know, they'd hook Jesus up to kind of some kind of a thick wire, and they'd pull him up into the sky as he's sort of waving to everyone. And that sort of image of, there he goes with the cardboard clouds closing him from view. Well, <clears throat> you know, the, the problem is, if we understand Jewish cosmology, that's not really the way they understood things. They, they, they didn't see the kingdom of heaven as being spatially distant, per se. They, they, that's what, I mean, as Dallas Willard says, a good way of, of understanding Matthew's statement is the kingdom in the heavens. They, they recognize that there's, there was two realities. One was the kingdom of this earth, what, what we call a natural kind of dimension, but all around and infused into that, permeating into that dimension, was another realm of God's kingdom where the, the, the person of God dwelt. And, and, 
And, and those two kingdoms were so close to one another, it, it wasn't unexpected that we might just suddenly encounter that presence of God, and then we pray like crazy, we'll live through it. Right? But what they're describing here is that as Jesus is announcing what's going to take place, he actually leaves their natural physical dimension, and he disappears into this realm of his father. And that's what they recognize as understand is, is happening. Now, you understand, for these guys, they're going, not again. This is like a bad case of where's Waldo. Like, uh, <clears throat> like you just got here. Like, don't, you, don't leave us hanging out to dry again. And, and they're trying to process all this, and the texts are going crazy again. Uh, put another hold on the Messiahship thing. We got to figure this out. You know, is he back? Is is this like you know the Son of Man is back and he's mad? This is like a great sequel movie, or or is that movie on hold for a while? And 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 while they're again trying to sort all this stuff out, how do you figure this guy out? Uh, they don't notice two guys in white that are standing there with them, which goes on in the next. Uh, they're intently looking as Jesus has disappeared, and two men, and, and there's, they got their cameras ready to roll, and they're saying, okay, guys, like, uh, I, like you, you're going to stand here all day, or, or, or you, you're going to get started? It, do, you, do you not get what's happened here? Do you see, this same Jesus, who's been taken from you in heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go. Something has happened. That membrane of evil and separation that happened at the fall, that has kept heaven and earth apart, that has been shredded. Jesus has broken that veil of separation. Remember the temple? Do you get the significance of that? He, is, he can go to heaven. He can come back. Heaven can touch earth. Earth, earth can touch heaven. That's a game changer. That means there's nothing here that can't change. And the very spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus, is already in your hearts. The marriage of heaven and earth has begun. There is a new meeting place. It's not the uh, heavily, it's not the temple with all its clear demarcated places. You can go here, you can't go there. Nobody can go here except the high priest once. That's being torn. That's, now all of a sudden, there's a new living temple not made with human hands. And the presence of heaven, the kingdom of God, is alive and within you. There's nothing heaven can't reach. So, are you going to get started? I, I don't, you know, this isn't in the scripture. This is in my head. But I, I'm pretty sure it's accurate. It, at least it is to me. I, I can imagine Peter, because he's usually the first guy out of the boat. I can imagine him looking around at, you know, the others, looking at the angels, looking at where Jesus was, and then suddenly he goes, guys, I, I don't mean this in a respectful way, but... I think we're Jesus. Like, I, I think now we're Jesus. Oh, maybe not big J Jesus, but 
I think we're supposed to be little J Jesuses going around everywhere being him. Some kind of like divine improv or something. You know, go around, I mean, whether wear the bracelet or not, just think, what would Jesus do right now? I, I think we're supposed to be Jesus. Now, if, if you read on through the rest of the story of Acts, guess what? That's what they do. That's simply what they do, and it's simply how they understand the story and the call. Isn't that what happens in, in Acts chapter 3 when Peter is doing what, I mean, he was living an ordinary day, doing what they did every day. He's going to the temple not for some special thing because that's what they did at that hour of the day to pray. He walks by a guy, probably the same route he's taken numbers of times before because they hung out with Jesus in Jerusalem for some time. They're walking by a guy who then as now was probably sitting on his turf, right? Maybe they even knew it. Maybe his name was Zeke. Maybe by that time he's saying, Pete, got any change this morning? And, and, and Peter maybe automatically reaches into his pocket. Of course, I mean, he's a little distracted because he's doing what Jesus told him to do daily and that he's praying the prayer, you know, our Father in heaven. You know, may I bring honor to your name today? Oh, let the end of the world come today. Like, what a great day for heaven to come back. You know, uh, and he's, he's working through Give us tastes of tomorrow's bread. And, 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 and this guy distracts him. Say, got any change? And he only wants to keep, pray, keep praying. And he, oh, shoot, I don't have any change. And, he, and then he makes the mistake. He looks at this guy. A guy that he's walked by numbers of times. And ironically, probably Jesus walked by a number of times. And he's still crippled. Except he looks at him and he remembers Jesus looking at people. And he's gazing intently because something in his mind is saying, hey, heaven is touching earth right here. Will you put your hand to it? That's a little risky, you know? And he's, he's going and he's going, what do I do? What do I do? Oh, shoot, I wish I had some money. All right. He reaches out, he takes his hand, and he says, I don't have any money, but in the name of Jesus, helps the man up. Like I said, it's a little risky, because if all of a sudden nothing happens, and the man goes back down again, you say, I'd like a little exercise, get some air around those limbs, here's my credit card, like, (laughs) you know, whatever you want, yours, you know. But in that act of obedience, heaven touches earth, And once again, he realizes that there's nothing that can't be touched with the gospel. You read the rest of Acts. That's what they do. They simply wander around, praying every day, trying to keep their eyes open, realizing because of Jesus, at any moment, light can break through darkness. A taste of heaven can touch earth. And all they're doing is walking around looking for little streams of light. Anyone ever lived in Vancouver in January? Yeah. Right? Every day you go, there's got to be something somewhere. And you see a little ray of light over Kitsilino and you go, I'll drive there. Right? (laughs) 
Even this, heaven can touch earth, even in Vancouver in January, right? And basically, that's what they do. And really, that's been the point of this thing we call Christianity ever since. I think it's the whole point of Matthew 28 when one author called the conspiracy of little Jesuses. That we would walk around day to day just looking for where heaven is reaching for earth, being willing to put our hand to it, realizing in that moment of simple obedience all heaven can break loose. Now, I guess, if you're going to summarize it all and say, well, then, what's the whole purpose of this? Why are we here? Well, folks, Christianity is Costco. I mean, think about it for a sec. I mean, we've missed the simplicity of what this is all about. Now, where's the nearest, there's one at the airport. Where's, Where's the next one? Oh, there's no, oh, yes, right. We passed it the other day, right. So, um, and everybody's done the Costco drill, right? Like, in our family, we have clear, we're still, we're older, so we have a clear division of labor. So, <clears throat> now everybody does everything, but back in those days, there's certain, there's men's jobs and there's women's jobs, which isn't all good, no, right, I'm not saying that. But when we go to Costco, we have a clear division of labor. Joy has a list and goes and actually buys stuff. I go and do the circuit, yeah. <laughs> right? Well, you know, there's a specific circuit. And near the front, you go by the granola bars, and, and that kind of warms you up a little bit. And you go through, there's the yogurt, and there's, you know. And all of it is designed to lead, at least in a man's life, to the sausage station. And, and, and it's, very, it's very deceptive. They, they have this little inobtrusive, you know, elderly little old lady or man, people my age, and, and they just, they don't bother you at all. They have their little hairnet, and they just, they just hold out a little bit of sausage. You say, would you like just a bite? You go, well, what could be wrong? I mean, a little bite of sausage, you know. And, and so you, you just take that toothpick, and you bite into it. Something happens. <laughs> you go. It's deep inside. There's a resonance. Deep calling to deep. It's sausage. I, I, I love sausage. I need sausage. I would kill for sausage. And then you find yourself, as you bought all of the stock in the store, going, my sausage, my precious. Isn't it interesting? Now, I may be exaggerating just a bit. But isn't that the gospel? That all we're here to do is to give a taste, a taste that's almost been lost and forgotten in the human heart, but not entirely. 
That when we would taste it, something is awakened within us and we realize this is what we're for. This is the zenzu, the, 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 the memory of the home I've never known. This is the longing for this other reality, this other world. This is what the gospel is supposed to be. Not big advertising campaigns or cardboard pictures of sausages say, don't touch it. I tell you what, it's worth signing up everything for. No, it's a taste. And at that point, heaven touches earth. We taste, we get a taste of heaven so that we might get a taste for it. And that's how it's reproduced itself through the whole world. This is what was happening in the first chapters of Acts. And it continues on, actually, for the next couple of hundred years. You read the first chapters of Acts, and you think, this is going to be, I mean, you know, don't be, if you read the first few chapters of Acts, you're not expecting the New Testament. Like, why write letters? I mean, the whole world's going to be saved in a few years, and Jesus will come back. Don't, isn't that the feeling you get? Like, what's going to stop this? And yet, when we read some of those letters 25 to 30 years in, some of the same realities they face are realities that we struggle with right now, Vancouver East Vineyard today. And that is the struggle to remain both faithful and faith-filled. Uh, let's look at the, briefly at the letter that Peter writes. It's, it's, uh, it's probably you know, some kind of a circular letter. It's, it's, it's probably focused on, on people in, in Asia Minor. And, and it's likely written fairly closely before Peter's death, which uh, most would recognize is, is probably in the persecution of Nero. I mean, the church went through sporadic uh, persecution in different times and seasons, and Nero's was one of the more significant ones. And he, he, he writes to these believers because they're losing some confidence. You know, I don't think many of them expected that this whole time between the times would still be going on. Uh, they ask him, and uh, Peter responds to them in, in the second, his second letter, uh, chapter 3, he said, look, uh, you know, when he says the Lord's not slow keeping his promise, it's because they've been asking him, like, do you know what's going on? Like, why are we still here? Where's Jesus? They saw all those amazing things that happened breaking in in the early chapters of Acts. And it isn't that that hasn't continued, that they're not praying for people and still seeing results to their prayers. The problem is, is that they're at the same time seeing another reality. And that is what theologians call the not yet of the kingdom. That the fact that this age to come is already broken in, and yet evil still seems to be not only alive, but doing seemingly quite well in, in, in some pockets. And, and they're saying, well, 
that's a, like, this is what was promised? I, by now, if we read Paul's letters as well, some of them have died. Some of them are sick. Uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing because Peter, remember the incredible story of Peter being released from prison and they're having this prayer meeting full of faith and expectancy. He knocks on the door, go away, we're praying for Peter. You know, And then finally, you know, he gets his way in, they go, our prayers worked. They want to put their hands in plastic bags and, you know, and so that, well, I guess that's a little mixed metaphor, but they're so afraid to lose whatever anointing they had in their prayer time and they want to keep that going. And yet, interestingly enough, very shortly, Peter's going to die. He's going to go into prison. And all the prayers in the church are going to spring. Anybody ever struggled with that? Tell you what, I mean, I always warn people. I say, look, when I'm teaching this faith-filled message of the kingdom has come within our reach, I'll say, I want to remind you, though, that if you take this seriously, you are going to see God move in powerful ways. And two to four years from now, you're going to hate doing this. They go, what? And it's not because none of it has worked. It's because it doesn't work the way you want it to. God is, is, if he's got a strategic planner, they ought to hire, they ought to fire him, you know. I mean, he heals all the wrong people. He takes people that are of no use for the kingdom of God, and he profoundly resurrects them. And other people that are invaluable to the work of the kingdom, he lets die. Anybody been around Jesus for a while? There's things you don't understand, do you? I mean, you just go... If I can't pick, if you're not going to let me be in charge of this, I don't want to play. Right? And, and, and so this, they've already faced some of this. It's not that the kingdom hasn't come, but it hasn't come in its entirety. And there's still this mixture of, of the present evil age and loss and heartbreak and misunderstanding while the kingdom is coming in profound ways and changing lives. Now, later on, sociologists like uh, Rodney Stark or, or uh, historians like Ramsey McMullen from Yale will, will reflect on this period of time that happens over about a 200-year period. And the church and, and the, the partnership of Christians and the Spirit of Christ uh, is absolutely going to turn the whole Roman world upside down. Do you know what the growth rate is about every year? About 4%. If you're running a church, a 4% growth rate sucks. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is going anywhere? Like, you know, and, and, and this is what they're beginning to struggle with. Are, are we winning? Are we actually even still going to hold our place in the game? Like, has God worked this thing through? And so these are the struggles. Now, I don't think they're, yeah, there's some that have left them, but still many of them are faithful. They're holding on. And, you know, don't let me denigrate faithfulness. Faithfulness in our day and age isn't all that bad of a deal, is it? Except that it's not enough. And so here's how Peter writes. He says, look, 
I, I sense tremendous humility in this. It's not like he's <clears throat> necessarily the same brash Peter we would have met 30 years before, but he says, no, it's, it's not. he says, I know this much. It isn't that God's slow. It isn't that right now there's a do not disturb sign in heaven with the Trinity huddled going, shoot, how are we going to land this thing? We didn't think the devil was this strong. Like, if you figured this out, we started this thing, said, gee, that seemed to go well, but now how in the world do we finish what we started? He's saying, no, look, there isn't any kind of strategic confusion. There isn't, this isn't inability. This isn't God being busy in some other universe and hasn't gotten around to earth lately. Or He's saying, you know, how do I understand the delay? I guess it's mercy. Now, I should have understood that in the way that he even responded to me and how merciful he was to me, but I think the only way to understand this patience, this delay, is the mercy of God. Now, if he was going to unpack it theologically, because he goes on and says, but it's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I See, what Peter understood is that at the cross, this huge door of invitation was opened. I, there, there's significance in the, isn't there? When Jesus unrolls the scroll, whether it's coincidental or not, it isn't from God's point of view, and he reads from Isaiah. <coughs> and he reads this passage with many would have understood as being messianic, and, and talks about the, 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 the year of the Lord's favor. And then at that precise point, verse 3, he just stops and he doesn't carry on with the accompanying phrase and the day of vengeance of our God. Which for the Jewish people, really, the turning of the age was when God would return his favor to his people and judge their enemies. So here Jesus says, a door is going to open. Anyone who will may come. But judgment is going to be delayed. Now you think about it, if judgment isn't delayed, it's a very short period of invitation. All right, ever, I used to play with our kids, I'd have my lie on my back with my legs up, and they'd have to, they'd have to uh, crawl through my bent legs, and I'd go, bridge is open, and then bridge is closed, and you sort of, half crush them playfully, you know, <clears throat> just to let them know who's still boss. And, uh, but that fun little game, but this wasn't kind of like, bridges, oh, bam, bridges closed. Oh, Jesus, you came back for four? And, and what Peter is saying, I have no idea how long judgment is going to be withheld. God seemingly keeps going, oh, I don't think we're full yet. I, th I think there's room for a few more. And of course, we're always the one going, bring judgment now, I'm in. And, and the heart of God says, well, aren't you glad he waited for you? Aren't you glad he's still willing to wait? But what Peter is saying is, there's cost to mercy. Because it means if evil is not judged so that the door may remain open, 
then evil exists and evil is evil. And it will impact our lives and the lives of people around us. That's the cost of invitation. And this is what they're experiencing 30 years in. But that cost can really cause us, even if we don't lose faithfulness, it really can cause us to lose sight of that expectation we once had. And, and that's, this is the problem, isn't it? The, the scriptures talk about you know, how um, uh, it can make the heart sick. Can it? It's the, the whole, you remember the old missionary conferences that you grew up in a church, without vision the people perish. And, and actually what it means is without revelation, uh, people cast off restraint. When there's a delay, we, we go, well, is this really going to happen or is this not? And then it's hard to hold on to that confidence, that expectancy, that, that forward-looking posture. So many of the things happen are so heartbreaking. Um, we, just, we were just at Andy and Linda Parks last night. He, they're going to come here. Uh, Andy, you know, it's interesting. I mean, he had a real problem with tendonitis. Tremendous pain for a worship leader. He, for the last how many years, Joe? Was it 18 years or something? 11 years? He just had excruciating pain in his hands every time he led worship, any time he played an instrument. And then there was a ministry time, a prayer time, and it, it looked like he was completely healed, except he's mostly healed. Still has a little bit of pain, but it's a dramatic difference. And, but you go, well, God, why would you do that? Well, one, why would you wait for 11 years? But then if you actually act, why not act completely? Just uh, while we were in Hong Kong, I got an email from a, a gal that Joy prayed for in the last year. She had, uh, had not slept without heavy medication, a drug called Ambien that she'd been taking every day for 17 years. And uh, while she wasn't advised to this, was prayed for, make a long story short, Cold turkey went off Ambien. No problem, just like that. Slept like a baby. And, uh, I, I mean, I don't know what's the greater miracle, sleeping or doing that with that kind of drug. Uh, <clears throat> and six months later, the sick of sleeplessness started to return. And you go, oh, God, like, I thought we won one. Like... Anyone been through an experience like that? You, you have this incredible, and then you go, well, God, were you looking somewhere else? Did something, and now, you know, I, we haven't given up on this one yet because I, I, I always think the hardest healing is the first one. And that it's really, we've had a lot of wonderful answers to prayer and continuing to battle for these things. But, but that's, that's a hard thing. You know, the... the 
the, the, the picture in the first edition of my book, the, the picture was a little guy who was such an example of how God could break in and do miraculous things. I think this, the specialists themselves, non-Christian specialists, said that he'd had at least about 17 miracles, the fact that he was still alive. It was a little boy in a pose of a superman, you know. And <clears throat> he eventually died. You know what caused his death? Uh, human error. They messed up his feeding and he starved to death. He, like he, he died. And you go, hold it, God. You did about 17 miracles and you let a mistake end his life? Anybody ever struggle with God every once in a while? I mean, read the Psalms. They're really helpful, right? Um, there's a lot of things in this age that we don't understand. This time between the times. And, and so we're not the first ones. This is exactly what Peter is speaking into, this group of people that saw so much early in their history, and now they're trying to grasp that. How, how do we say yes to our past and bring that now into a future that's, that, that kind of feels a little more like it's out of season than in season? The dispersion has already taken place. Those dramatic early days of revival don't seem to be with us anymore. And so this is what Peter says. <coughs> He's saying, look, Jesus is going to hang on to us. This is how we fully hang on to him. Do two things. One, you ought to live holy and godly lives. In other words, hang in there, be faithful. Don't bail now. Don't start casting off all the restraint and giving, you know, giving vent to all of your emotions and discouragements. Hang in there. I mean, if Paul was going to chime in, and <clears throat> Peter does kind of bring him into the letter a little bit, he'd probably say what he said in Galatians 6.9, which is using the, the illustration of a farmer. And he says... Uh, look, don't give up. If you just hang in there, a harvest will come. Any farmer knows that. Now, it's a little more challenging speaking to city people about that because city people, that's like a completely different world. If you give a city person a seed and say, like, there's a potential harvest in the seed, they may say, well, what do you do? Well, you know, you put it in the dirt. Okay, they just... They go next to the sidewalk, stick it on the dirt, you know, wait. <laughs> Maybe actually even go get a coffee, come back, finish the coffee. And by that time, they pretty well go, farming sucks. <laughs> like, look at that, nothing. I mean, I've been here an hour. <laughs> like, nothing. Who in the world would do this for a living? You know? Well... You know, a, a, one thing a farmer has to have is patience. You do all sorts of stuff to nurture and, and create a welcoming environment for that seed, but you can't make it grow. So you have to, be tr you have to trust and be faithful. That, but those two biblical words are so tied in together. And you wait. And you wait. 
You plant many seeds. You do many things. You come back after all the city people have gone back and, you know, gone to school for a second degree or something. And, and then suddenly you see this little green shoot begin to come. And that's only the beginning. There'll be a hundred more times now where it seems like that crop will never ever see it to fruition. And many years when it'll fail. But if you don't give up, there will be a harvest. You know, uh, some of you may know Jackie Pullinger or know what she's done in Hong Kong or work with addicts and the poor and incredible reach in Asia. We've been with Jackie in some very low years. After about 12, 13 years, she had almost lost everything she started with. I mean, some really bleak and lean times. And now you see the fruit of transformed lives. It's unbelievable. Rich and poor, the impact that, that they've had into Asian culture and society. But one of the things she said was, you know, it's really not fair. If you just hang in long enough, almost everything works. People run away, you give up, you think it's been a total failure. 30 years later, they come back, and you realize God never gave up on them. And he's brought their lives around. She said, she doesn't, that's why she always says, oh, I just so many things I'd love to do, but I don't even want to start if I don't think I can do it for 20 years. That's like bare minimum when you begin to see the harvest that God has prepared. So Peter says, hang in there. Keep living lives that are set aside, set apart, focused on God and his presence in the world. Trust the process. But he doesn't just say, hang in there, suck it up, Life's hard, heaven's coming, probably after you die. What he says is, live this way as you keep looking forward. Here's one of the problems of delay. After a while, all we see is delay. And it changes our focal length. It's one of the challenges in our modern Western world and the extreme emphasis over a whole long period on on critical analysis. We've become absolute experts in seeing everything that's wrong. And we can't see anything that's right. And so we think we go into a room, a dark room, we don't even look for the light switch. We just get busy with blankets trying to beat out the darkness, hoping that in the absence of darkness there'll be light. Instead of realizing the most powerful thing we can do is turn on the light. So Peter's saying, keep looking forward. That's the powerful thing about that thing we call the Lord's Prayer. You know, give us today our daily bread. I think John Wimber was one of the ones who pointed out that a good reading of that text can be, give us today tomorrow's bread. Almost all commentators will see in that phrase uh, a hint of that one time in Israel's history when they were fed tomorrow's bread every day. The manna in the wilderness. And every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're saying, 
as we are in this place of the time between the times, yes, we're out of Egypt, but we're not yet fully into the promised land. There's elements of both. So, oh God, would you give us tastes of heaven now that we'll have a taste for it. And so that everyone we touch will be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. And the promise of Isaiah we sang about this morning would just resonate. Come, everyone who's thirsty. Hey, try this. Drinks are on the house. Right? It's all true. And so the farmer must not only plant a seed and wait, but given the history of failed plantings, every year must rise up in faith, not just faithfulness, And plant again, believing this could work. This planting could produce an abundant harvest. A bumper crop. And so Peter is saying, hang on to that faithfulness. God isn't done yet. And half the seed that you've lamented over and said, ah, it was a waste of time, it was a failure, you're going to see that God didn't give up on that seed and there's way more of a harvest out of your faithfulness than you've ever known. And you need to know that when you're out of season. But secondly, you've got to rise up and leave again and reach and say, you know what? Maybe I've apologized for the last 20 prayers I've prayed and said, look, I hope you don't end up worse by the time I'm done with you. But rise up and say, but this prayer could cause the crippled man to walk. Because Light is breaking into darkness and there's nothing that heaven can't reach. And I refuse to give up my hope in that reality. I'm going to reach to the day I die. Now, the author of Hebrews, whoever he or she was, will add one more little piece. And they'd say, you know, that's right. That's, I tell you what, that's the word of the Lord. You know? And we all respond, thanks be to God. Except for the fact that individually we usually can't hold it. And that's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, look, whatever you do, wherever it is, how many of, there, of, of you there are, you know, and you're in an inner city, you see, I mean, in, in not inner city, but you, in your urban center, you know the reality of this place will fill up again one day and then it'll empty as young families move and college students go and all sorts of things. And you just go, oh, man. You know, in season, out of season, whatever you do, don't give up. Meeting together and the author says, encouraging one another to hang in there and to keep looking forward. You know, when we first started, uh, before we planted this church, uh, we went through a season where it just seemed like everybody in our leadership was sick. Everybody was wrecked. We just kind of thought, we're not going to live to year two. And, and the Lord showed me a picture of, of a carousel which doesn't seem to be particularly spiritual. But in, uh, basically, I, I caught it. What I saw was this. 
If you ever see a carousel coming on its journey, you never see all the horses up and all the horses down. There are always some up, always some down, always some coming up, and always some going down. And he said, get used to it, that's the church. He said, if all the horses are up, you're fooling yourself. If all the horses are down, go get a day job. He said, but I'm very good at making sure there's always the right mix. That's why we come together, because when we're too weak to have any faith left, there's someone else who will reach out to us and say, don't give up yet. Right? Three weeks later, those roles are reversed, aren't they? Keep encouraging one another daily, because the harvest has come and it will come. There's nothing that will be wasted, nothing that will be lost. All right, let's stand. You know, that's why one of the things I so value about this simple little part of the family called the vineyard is that that we built into our liturgy, our tradition, that space where the horses that are up can reach to and lend a hand to and offer a taste of heaven to the ones that are down and discouraged. And, and, you know, we can grow so much in that. I saw a little thing in your bulletin about prophetic words. And, you know, just a little protocol, you know, before you step up and say, woe to you, apostate church of the age, or... Now, maybe check it out with Gordy first, and he may say, yeah, that's a good word. Come on up, you know. (laughs) Uh, But what a shame it would be if the only prophetic words get delivered from up on a stage. How wonderful it would be if we walked in and just looked and said, hey, I I see you. You know, like this uh, woman here, uh, uh, just with your, your arms folded, you know, and and how you—I uh, don't want to embarrass you, but I—I I, I just see how you have held on to hope, you know, and and refused to just give up, and and you have given so much hope to other people when there was just a slender thread of hope yourself. You have eyes to see other people around you. Even at times when everyone else would be forgiven for just being focused in on their own situation. Even then, you're looking to someone else and thinking of the smallest way you can bring some encouragement to them. You know, what I'm saying is, what we want to be is the kind of people we walk in and we look at one another and we say, I see who you are. Don't give up. Continue to give that gift into the world. God is going to join his hand to you. You know? That, that, that well, the, the longing that's in your heart, that just intense longing for what can be, you know, that has to be kept alive. And we have to keep 
reaching for that and say, I know it breaks your heart, but, you know, keep seeing that gift of seeing what could be and see it in the lives of individual people. Learn how to call it out of them and say, this is who you are. You know? This is why it's so important to come together and be that people because then we can step out of this place and we can see those around us whose hearts are longing for a home they've never known and say, hey, not much, but want a little bite of sausage? <laughs> and watch what begins to happen. So right now, let's just be the church. It, 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 I know there'll be some this morning that, that, you know, when you look at that faithful and faith-filled, you'd go... Well, you know, I, I think I've lost a lot of my expectancy, my ability to, 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 to believe that the kingdom of God could be just around the bend or at any moment could break in. And, and, and uh, if, if that's the place you're in, what we'd love to do this morning is just pray for you and pray for your eyes and pray that God will open you up to see what's happening all around you. And instead of seeing what isn't, to begin to see what is and how near heaven is. To see where light is breaking in. And that you might have the courage once again to reach for it and to see what might happen. To stimulate that reality again. So who's in that place? I mean, you guys are a, you're a close family. You're close friends. So it's not an embarrassing thing for you. But, I mean, which ones of you would say, hey, pray for me that my eyes would catch this ability again to see how near heaven is, that, that faith can arise in me again? Any, anyone want that? All right. Well, just, just keep that hand up because the last thing we can do is just say, well, then go home and pray about it. You know, what we want to do right now is we need just to be the church and, and others of us just gather around and say, let me pray for you. You know, because I know something can happen. And the minute you walk out of this building, you'll see differently. You know, something will begin to awaken. All right, so just were your hands still up? Uh, you guys pray for one another, don't you? Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Let's just, just gather around our friends. But right now, let's just pray and listen and watch. Invite the Holy Spirit to come and begin to stir their hearts and their eyes again. Okay? Let's come around them right now. <laughs>